Well, welcome back. Well done for getting this far. Always gets a bit thin, doesn't it, at this point in the day, which is no reflection upon our next two speakers at all. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Marcus Waite, who's going to uh, speak to us this afternoon um, about Ruskin at Walkley, reconstructing the St. George's Museum. Um, Marcus is a fellow in English and a university lecturer at Magdalen College, Cambridge, and he started his work um, on Ruskin when he was working as a lecturer at the University of Sheffield. So I'll hand over to Marcus. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, yes, I'm going to speak about um, a web-based resource called Ruskin at Walkley Reconstruction. The St. George's Museum is, as you will have noted, this is not um, a museum based in London, but uh, Ruskin was a Londoner, so that's something. Um, <laughs> the museum's now online, so um, if you're interested, I'd, I'd encourage you to look it up um, on the web when you go home. It's um, at www.ruskinatwalkley.org. Um, for those of you who don't know Ruskin, he was um, an art critic, probably um, the, the uh, most eminent of the uh, uh, Victorian period in England. Um, in the mid-stage of his life, and, and, and increasingly towards the end of his life, he became very concerned about what he considered endemic social injustice in this country, and he became very concerned with the business of redefining what we mean by wealth, what we mean by usefulness, utility, what we mean by education. Um, and Ruskin, um, like Wellcome, uh, was a, a wealthy man, not nearly as wealthy as Wellcome, but all the same a wealthy man, um, and he inherited a great deal of money from his father, who was a sherry merchant. And Ruskin, like Wellcome, um, spent uh, the, the, the surplus uh, funds at his disposal collecting, and often uh, not just collecting but also giving um, paintings in particular to the institutions he favoured. Um, so I'm going to give you some, begin by giving you some background um, on uh, this particular institution, the St. George's Museum. Um, Walkley is a suburb of Sheffield, a hilly suburb, um, and the St. George's Museum was a collection of watercolours, minerals, books, illuminated manuscripts, and plaster casts that Ruskin lodged in a, a cottage um, at the windy edge of the city. Um, what Ruskin meant by cottage is perhaps not what we mean by it, but all the same, it's a reasonably... Uh, modest, detached uh, uh, suburban villa that you see in the engraving before you. Um, and the cottage, the museum, was um, uh, in place in Ruskin's possession between 1875 and 1890, at which point it moved to a much larger site at the other end of the city, at Mearsbrook Park. Um, the collection still exists, though the museum that I'm going to talk about today does not. Um, the, the collection, the Ruskin collection, is curated by Museum Sheffield, and um, you can see it at the centre of the city in their Millennium Gallery, uh, quite close to the train station. 
The collection includes 900 paintings, 6,300 ornithological prints, 30-plus the casts from the Ducal Palace in, in Venice and from St. Mark's and from the northwest door of Rouen Cathedral. So it's an extensive collection for something which was uh, lodged in such modest circumstances. Uh, my talk is designed to offer you a, a kind of tour of this um, web resource. And um, towards the end of the talk, if I have time, I'll run through some of the problems of method that I encountered along the way, many of them quite suggestive, interesting problems um, I'd like to suggest. The museum was established um, in the wake of a previous foundation, uh, the Guild of St. George, um, an organisation that can be traced back to 1871. Um, I suppose you could call it a utopian organisation. It was devoted, um, in Ruskin's words, to the buying and securing of land in England. And it became a vehicle for Ruskin's neo-feudal experiments in agriculture and society. The idea being that if you, if you give people land um, and if you remove them from the sphere of a sort of exploitative, competitive society, then they will uh, husband the land well and they will live um, fruitful and honest lives. Um, the organisation still exists and, in fact, it still owns the collection. Uh, but um, it's more like, I suppose, a, an educational charity now than a, than a utopian organisation. Um, so what were the aims and functions of this museum? Well, uh, there were several aims, uh, and Ruskin would uh, prioritise different aims depending on when you caught him. But, but one very important aim was what he called the liberal education of the artisan. Uh, so Ruskin was interested in reaching out to workmen, work, working men, labourers, um, and ideal, ideally uh, artisans, but he was not interested in professional education. He was interested in fostering a kind of general intelligence, cultivating a kind of general intelligence. Um, that's not to say that this general intelligence would not be useful um, in productive terms. He actually thought that uh, showing these artworks to, to the she Sheffield artisans would help, help them in their work. Uh, but... Um, this wasn't professional education of the kind that was being pioneered um, in this period. It wasn't industrial education. It wasn't concerned to improve industrial efficiency. Um, so in that respect, the project is removed from um, uh, many of the uh, sort of economic collections that we've heard discussed today and from the um, South Kensington Museum, which was concerned to um, foster a revival in the industrial arts. Um, so with this aim of um, fostering craftsmanship and a kind of um, uh, manual thought, I suppose you could call it, um, Ruskin uh, included in the, in the collection uh, Verrocchio's The Madonna Adoring the Christ Child, which was uh, the most valuable um, work in the collection, and a copy, a copy of Botticelli's um, The Virgin and Child with St. John by Charles Fairfax. Charles Fairfax Murray. And Ruskin explained that Verrocchio was also a great worker in iron. And he claimed that Botticelli was the greatest Florentine workman, an allusion to his early training as a goldsmith. 
So Ruskin, as ever, is concerned here to break down the distinction between the, the fine arts and the applied arts. And he does so by uh, pointing to, the, I suppose, the, the artisanal side of, of, of several uh, fine artists. Um, another um, ad objective function of the museum was, uh, in typically uh, extreme terms, to uh, distract the populace from their churches, gasometers, or libraries for circulating rubbish. Uh, Ruskin was concerned to, to provide a very selective library for the, the visitors um, uh, who climbed the hill to see the museum. Um, it wasn't supposed to be sort of, you know, popular uh, trash. Um, the museum was also um, founded to house um, what Ruskin called Memorial Studies of Venice. Uh, Ruskin was very concerned by the condition of Venice. He was concerned uh, by the damage being done to it, not only uh, by, the, by the, um, uh, the military conflict at the, at the beginning of the century, but also by admiration uh, of Venice, whether it be tourism or heavy-handed heavy restoration of Venetian buildings. So he wanted to capture the appearance and the detail of buildings um, before they were destroyed. And he did so, interestingly, by um, commissioning photographs, um, uh, paintings, and plas plaster casts. So there's, there's a sort of interesting um, hesitation there between the feeling that these things are going to be destroyed forever uh, once their material form has gone from the world and the feeling that you can preserve them by copying them. Um, and these, these copies were produced by his team of copyists, among them J.W. Bunny, Frank Randall, Thomas Matthews Rook, Henry Roderick Newman, and Charles Fairfax Murray. Um, there was also, um, uh, uh, I suppose, a, a circumstantial uh, reason at the, at, the, at the heart of the decision to choose Sheffield as opposed to some other city. Um, Ruskin did initially intend to uh, operate this on a kind of franchise basis, whereby Sheffield would be a kind of beacon, a model, and other cities would follow. Uh, that didn't happen in the event. Um, but even in the early stages, we see various reasons cooked up by Ruskin to explain why Sheffield to his wider national audience. Um, one reason uh, is that the curator of the museum, uh, eventually the curator Henry Swan, who was an ex-student of Ruskin's at the London's Working Men's College, had moved to Sheffield in order to take advantage of the city's expertise in um, metalworking. Uh, and Swan invited Ruskin to visit him, and uh, the idea formed of founding a museum in the city, with Swan serving as curator and living upstairs in this uh, building with his family. Ruskin also developed various um, reasons for choosing Sheffield after the event. One, it was a centre of metalworking. Um, he writes that the English work of iron um, is the only branch of manufacture in which England could even hope to surpass the skill of other countries. So if you're, you're interested in fostering a, a revival in artisanship, then it follows that Sheffield is the place where you would begin. Um, Ruskin also explains that Sheffield is in Yorkshire, reason enough. Um, and, and Yorkshire yet, in the main temper of its inhabitants, Old English, and capable, therefore, yet, of the ideas of honesty and piety by which Old England lived. Um, so, again, there's a sense in which um, Sheffield in, and, and more widely Yorkshire 
is the receptacle for a, a kind of endangered culture which, which needs to be supported and cultivated, um, Old England. Sheffield, he also tells us, is within easy reach of beautiful natural scenery and of the best art of English hands at Lincoln, York, Durham, Selby, Fountains, Bolton and Furness. Um, so Sheffield has a relationship with a kind of um, ecclesiastical um, heritage, which Ruskin uh, locates in, in the north of England. Uh, again, uh, uh, th there's, a, there's a link drawn up here between the great um, uh, monastic and cathedral architecture of the north of England and this, this experiment in reviving artisanship. Um, as I said earlier, um, the museum was located on the edge of the city, um, and this realised Ruskin's conception of an extra mural museum, a, a, a museum which is not confined within its four walls, but which symbolically reaches out to the environment in which it is set. Walkley, um, rather incredibly, uh, reminded Ruskin of the Alps. Um, but um, I've spent a lot of time there. I, I, I've lived there, in fact. And I can say that you do get very fresh air at that side of the city. Um, and uh, the hills, in, in a sense, do recondition your body and mind, as, as Ruskin um, had hoped. Uh, he hoped that visitors would climb the hill and that this would be a kind of symbolic ascent. Um, and all this um, adds up to Ruskin's, I suppose, classical notion that a museum should be uh, a place of the muses, uh, quite literally. It should be uh, a place rather than an institution or a building, a place that will inspire you. So what were the aims of, of this project? Well, um, one aim was uh, uh, restorative. Um, when I arrived in Sheffield as a, as, as a lecturer, um, I was struck by the sense that the, the, the admirable, uh, interesting, uh, attractive displays in Museum Sheffield were really geared towards explaining the person, Ruskin, um, and explaining the objects in the collection. They didn't seem so interested in um, exhibiting what I would consider an experimental museum, quite apart from the objects which were housed in it. And the collection um, displays didn't pay much attention to the origins of the collection in a suburb, which, again, to my mind, is, is an interesting provenance. Um, so knowing that... Uh, uh, Resources, of course, are limited. Um, it's not possible to display the whole collection. Much of it is in store in a kind of uh, dungeon under the museum. Um, I thought about ways about how, of, of, I suppose, reconstructing a, an awareness of that original context, which Ruskin thought to be so important, the fresh air, the hills, um, the relationship with Derbyshire, um, just uh, uh, not quite in sight but close, uh, the, the Peak District being very close. Um, and uh, so knowing that there were some very haunting and interesting Victorian photographs of the museum interior I thought about ways of, of rendering the museum in virtual terms doing in virtual space what isn't possible now physically um, at least not practically possible um, one important feature of this experiment was I suppose to remind visitors that this is, yes, not just a collection but a museum and it had a very distinctive machinery in terms of its furniture, some of which was designed by Ruskin. So the machinery of display 
much of which is, doesn't um, conform to modern museum standards, um, can't be displayed in the new, in the new gallery, but um, was an important feature of that past um, situation. So all those things fed into this restorative agenda. Um, the project was also exploratory. Um, the building still exists, but I would, I'd been told that it had been knocked through and... Um, uh, well, I'd been told all sorts of things which, which turned out not to be the case when I actually managed to gain access by writing to the landlord um, of um, a much larger property which had been turned, along with this building, into a, a kind of young ladies' training college at the turn of the century after it was sold um, and now is a, a residential block of flats. Um, when I finally gained access to the part of the property which had been the original cottage, I discovered that, that actually it remained remarkably intact. The dimensions were still in place. The room, the room plan was still in place. It was essentially um, a, a, a kind of large um, cottage plan of the kind that you find in, in that Victorian part of Sheffield. So that was um, very pleasing because it, it, it enabled me to compare past with present um, and to fill in the picture. Um, and finally, I was interested in creating a resource, as you might expect, useful for researchers, teachers and students, but also, crucially, um, for the general public. Um, the, the website is displayed on a touchscreen terminal in, on the physical floor of the Ruskin collection in, in the Millennium Gallery in Sheffield. So it had to be um, visually suggestive, interesting, as well as useful, and that's a difficult balance to strike. It was also undertaken on quite a, a modest budget, so that's, that was another challenge. Um, I'm showing you on this first um, slide uh, uh, the, uh, an engraving of the, the museum. Uh, this is the homepage of the museum. Um, I'd never seen this engraving in uh, the literature um, surrounding the museum, um, so I was very pleased to discover it in Sheffield Illustrated Views and Portraits, portraits which have appeared in the Sheffield Weekly Telegraph during the year 1884. And the reason I, I was drawn to it was because of the, um, the two paths that intersect at the, the doorway. There is a sense of welcome, which I think was very important to the self-image of the museum, drawing you in. Um, on the side, um, in, in, in the margin, we have various uh, links uh, giving you information on the history of the museum uh, what happened to it after it left Walkley, uh, information on Ruskin, on the project, um, information on research, bibliographies, that sort of thing, teaching case studies, and links to the, the, the various other Ruskinian institutions around the country. So um, I'm now going to enter the museum by pressing on Explore the Museum. I'm afraid the screen I have here is, is rather small, um, so I'm going to have to sort of scroll up and down at various points. Um, as you can see, um, when I talk about entering the museum, um, we, well, we end up with an exterior view. That, in a way, reflects the fact that I see the museum less as a, an interior than as a setting, as well as an interior. Um, and through this, it's a kind of portal. Um, we can, if I scroll down a bit, you can see various what I call hot spots appear as you draw the cursor across the image and this allows you to explore various um, different uh, sides to the, to the museum setting. But I'm going to look at that maybe a bit later and go straight into the interior of the museum.
Um, the basic concept of the museum, I suppose, is that, that, that um, uh, photographs serve in a way as rooms or uh, uh, a way of navigating an interior. Um, and as on the exterior photograph, you can explore, you can instead of browse the contents um, by drawing the cursor across the image. And if a photograph is available, then it comes up below as a thumbnail. Um, uh, so... What I wanted to avoid, and in a sense it wasn't uh, practical in resource terms anyway, but I'm quite pleased that I, I wasn't able to fund it, was a, in a sense a sort of 360-degree display, a sort of busy, um, moving, interactive um, display uh, of the kind which I think many museum websites have, 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 have developed. Um, the advantage of this, I think, is that it, it, it's simple, it works um, on the museum floor, um, it also reflects my concern not to create a database, um, which is in, in itself very useful, uh, of the kind that the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford have, have produced, um, uh, uh, based on the Ruskin teaching collection, the elements of drawing. I'm doing something different here. I'm interested in encouraging users to browse the displays. Um, with a database, you need to, in a way, you need to know what you're looking for. Um, in order to get a, a great deal out of it. In this case, um, it really is a question of discovering things. Um, so um, I'm just, I'd like to I suppose, make a distinction between those two, two kinds of way, two ways of, of presenting resources. It's not meant to be an online catalogue of the collection, in other words. Um, it's a sort of, it's, it's a view of, of a past museum um, uh, which... Uh, uses surviving photographs um, as, a, as a sort of, as a means. Uh, so I'm not listing everything that's in the collection, and I'm not listing things particularly which can't be seen in the photographs. Um, how did um, we recognise um, uh, some of these objects? Well, most of these are pretty clear, but in some of the, the later views I'll show you in a bit... Um, they look pretty obscure, and you wonder how on earth could you, could, you, could you identify which object is visible in the photograph. Well, it was quite amazing what was possible um, with the assistance of the museum curator, Louise Pullen, who, um, the Ruskin collection curator, uh, who was able to identify works on the basis of the, the shape of frames. Um, so that was, that was really quite um, pleasing. I'm going to show you a few representative objects. The first is this, um, The Blacksmith's Forge by Benjamin Kresik. Um, as you can see on this information page, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of text. If you want to see the image close up, um, you click on it. Benjamin Kresik is, in a sense, the exemplary museum visitor. Um, he undergoes, he's a workman, a grinder, in fact, who undergoes a kind of conversion experience, and it's described by Ruskin's early editors, uh, Cook and Wedderburn, they write that Prince Leopold was presented on the occasion of his visit, um, Prince Leopold being uh, a son of Queen Victoria, who was friendly with Ruskin and visited the museum. He was presented with a, a bust of Ruskin, the work of Mr. Benjamin Kresik, 
then a Sheffield artisan whose artistic gifts were discovered by the Walkley Museum, now modelling master at the Birmingham School of Art. A young grinder strolled on Saturday afternoon into the museum. Its contents interested him, and he fell into conversation with the curator. The spark was quickened, and the grinder became a sculptor. There's a sense of a sort of um, ontological transformation, that the the man ceases to be a grinder and becomes a sculptor. Um, The work itself, again, is exemplary in the sense that it represents a a Ruskinian and, um, in broad terms, typically Victorian subject, uh, the dignity of labour, uh, there's a sense here of, of, of honest and useful work which is uh, uh, expressed in manual terms uh, with strength and with accuracy. Uh, in, in the background, we see children clustering. They're curious, but there's also the sense, perhaps, that they are the recipients, the beneficiaries of this honest labour. Moving back to um, the interior, um, I want to show you... Um, this copy of The Entombment of Christ um, by Frank Randall um, after Titian. And it's one of the many copies which are lodged in the museum. Um, Ruskin had seen this work in the Louvre back in 1844, uh, so it connects back to early artistic preoccupations for Ruskin. The point I want to make here is that the copies of the museum possess no stigma um, for Ruskin. They're teaching aids but they're also um, valuable records as far as he's concerned, and they're hung alongside valuable originals. So they're not segregated. There's no sense of a quarantine set up between copies and originals. Um, And these kinds of points, I suppose, acquire extra complexity in the online context, which relies on photographic copies of copies. So they're two steps rather than one step away from the, the original work and they are themselves endlessly proliferated on on the web. Back to the um, interior view. Um, As you can see, um, some books are visible in this photograph, and they can be identified as the works of uh, Francis Bacon, uh, which Ruskin donated to the the museum collection. Uh, They're part of an extensive library, Um, Ruskin explained in 1857 that he'd never known anyone with false taste in books and true taste in pictures. (laughs) So the very selective library is intended as a way of of sort of guiding, uh, cultivating uh, taste in a way that will will feed directly into um, the artistic education running alongside it. Um, The library is the least developed side of the website, but I would eventually like to um, digitise some of these works. Um, What I've supplied instead is uh, um, an explanation of of why, in this case, of why Bacon appealed to Ruskin. Um, He appealed to Ruskin because of his study of material nature. Uh, He draws uh, a comparison between Bacon's interest in, I suppose, um, housing everything in nature somehow within the confines of a small room, but in particular um, a museum, but in particular this question of, of, of seeing nature accurately and responsibly. And he connects this to the art of Turner, of whom Ruskin was a great champion. 
The, the page uh, lists uh, the various categories into which the library was arranged. To move room, we click on extension view one. And here we find, um, again, I'm afraid I can't show you the whole image um, because of the screen, but um, a similar thing applies here. We move the cursor around and up come thumbnails below. Um, it's a, the extension is a bit of a puzzle. It, it opened in, in May 1855. For reasons similar to those described in relation to welcome, the, these works kept, kept arriving. Um, and uh, Ruskin was, was concerned that they were simply lying in lavender, as he put it. Um, so he paid for this extension to be built. Um, this work here is the centrepiece, um, the western facade of the Basilica of San Marco, Venice, by J.W. Bunny. And um, it's one of these memorial studies that I was describing earlier. Ruskin wanted to um, uh, catch, as he put it, the detail of Venice. It wasn't just a metaphor. He wanted his artists to run and catch things that were disappearing from the world. Um, another work which is visible here, Bird and Grapes. It's a plaster cast. Um, and this is one of the things that the, the website has enabled me to, to do, um, to compare um, a sculptural detail um, which um, is, in a sense, preserved in the museum, but which still exists in a way on a Venetian surface. Having found the bird, I discovered that it seems to have lost its head. So there is a sense in which the museum performs very valuable preservative work. It's not simply um, an antiquarian institution. It, in a sense, it's still doing what Ruskin hoped for it. Um, it's preserving Venice. Um, down here is a very valuable object, um, one of the volumes of the museum visitor book. Um, the museum visitor book um, tells us that Ruskin was uh, successful in reaching out to artisans. Uh, take September 1880, approximately 290 visitors visited in just that month. Uh, bear in mind this is a small museum, um, uh, at points only one room, and then with one room and the extension. Um, to take, give you an example of some of the visitors from that month, well, there was Benjamin Kresik, multiple entries, this um, exemplary workman who was studying at the museum. Uh, one Enoch, Enoch Ward, student from the South Kensington Museum. Um, a whole Fox family, Mary, Tom, Arthur, Lily from 89, Daniel Hill, Walkley. Um, Edith Walker from Leeds, Sid A. Gimson from Leicester, Joseph Jenkinson, a schoolmaster from Netheredge, Sheffield, uh, and a name from the Bethnal Green Museum, which I haven't quite been able to make out, um, which, uh, the museum that was mentioned earlier. Um, I'm running um, a little short on time now, so I'm going to um, quickly show you the third image of this um, extension. Um, and um, 
take you back to the exterior. Um, and this is, uh, in a sense, an opportunity to explore uh, the connection between uh, the building as it was and the extant, extant structure. So here I've taken photographs of the porch, the cellar, um, this image here, uh, I don't know if you can see, shows a mantelpiece, uh, which is very similar to the mantelpiece um, visible in the first photograph, the interior photograph. Um, this page shows various uh, views of the, uh, uh, the area, those views which would have been visible from the museum, the views which Ruskin considered so symbolically important. The wider built environment, um, Walkley Hall, a building that was knocked down um, early in the 20th century, uh, a school that was built uh, very close to the museum a few years after it closed, and a drawing of some student cottages. Um, the idea was that these students would come to the, to, to the museum almost as pilgrims, um, and they would lodge themselves in these cottages, and they would visit the museum over a, a series of weeks. Um, shall I round up? Yeah. Um, there are a few uh, sort of methodological issues which I, I hope to cover. I don't think I have time to cover during the talk, but I'm very happy to discuss them during questions. Uh, one of them concerns the, uh, uh, the problem of objects which are visible in the photographs but which have disappeared from the collection, it's the sense of the, the instability of the collection which these photographs uh, register. The other is what you do with um, an artwork which appears in all three views of the extension, suggesting either that the photographs were taken at different times, uh, with a different arrangement, or, more probably and more interestingly, that we're dealing with a kind of dressed room, that these photographs are not uh, records, impeccable records of an interior, but are in, the, in, in their own way performative. And we see that in the first interior photograph, where you have all these unframed artworks propped on the furniture in a temporary, uh, uh, temporary way. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there, um, but I, I'll, I'll look forward to answering any questions about that um, afterwards. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Marcus. Um, I'm just hesitating to make sure we get the final presentation in the right place.